Have you ever seen something in a theater that you just couldn't explain? Or have you ever thought about if dying really ain't that bad? And do you spend sleepless nights wondering exactly what happened to Natalie Wood that night on the boat? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then it's time for you to exit stage death. Exit Stage Death is the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. Releasing bi-weekly on Tuesday starting May 24th. So if you want to find out which Broadway house is the most haunted. Talk about what killed our favorite Broadway flops. And learn about the murderous path of Mama Rose that took Gypsy Rose Lee to stardom. It's time for Places, actors. Thank, Thank you, Places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back, Serial Killers, to another deep dive into the vials of Saturday Morning Confidential. Today's case file is an interesting one. And one that on paper sounds absolutely insane. So what happens when you combine the plot of a Rita Hayworth movie, roller disco, and the booming fashions of Los Angeles in 1979, and the choreography of the future director of the High School Musical trilogy? Most people would laugh and say, a bargain bin garbage movie. And in many ways, they aren't wrong. Today, we're going to into a film that failed to impress critics, but built a huge fan base and had a soundtrack that went certified double platinum and was the inspiration for the Golden Raspberry Awards. And it's the film Xanadu. Named after the temple from the 1816 poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, follows a brilliant artist trying to make his break while painting the giant record covers that hung outside of stores like Tower Records. Well, by a stroke of divine inspiration, a mural that he painted of the nine muse sisters from Greek mythology comes to life to help Sonny find his inspiration. And one muse named Cleo succeeds. Sonny meets a philanthropist named Danny, who we'll find out through the film was a major player in the big band era, and the two strike a deal, and they open up a club together called Xanadu. Sonny falls in love with Cleo, she returns his feelings, which breaks the gods' rules, and she's taken back to Olympus, and he breaks through the barrier to the neon land of the gods and pleads his case. And Xanadu opens with a grand musical number, and that is that. It actually sounds like a super simple and easy plot. And add music by some of the biggest pop's names at the time, and what could go wrong? Well, let's find out. So Xanadu was originally made to be a low-budget cash grab on the emerging roller disco craze hitting the nation. It was written by Richard Christian Danus, and while the 45-page prospectus captured the minds at Universal Studios, they gave him the unfortunate news that it was going to have to be completely rewritten. And Mark Reed Rubel was helped to uh, added to help flesh out and change the script. It's all revision after revision. But not much actually changed. And for some reason, a lot of the original script made it to the film. And it should be notated that they had started production on the movie at this point. They were doing the musical numbers. And the music was being written kind of completely separately from the script. And so they were filming these kind of musical scenes, these musical montages with just day scripts. So just like page here, page there to figure out what was happening. And so... You know, if anybody's ever worked on something that disjointed, it's like, how is this possibly going to come together? <laughs> now, a lot of this film combines the idea of nostalgia for the big band era and the glitz and glamour of the late 70s rock music. And early in development, they found their star in Olivia Newton-John. 
who had starred as Sandy in Greece and at the time was the highest grossing musical film of all time. So on paper, that sounds wonderful. Kenny Ortega and Jerry Trent served as dual choreographers, which could be chaotic. But in a film where it's about the blending of genres and the blending of generations, it honestly kind of worked. It's it's joked that Xanadu was never meant to age well and was supposed to capture a moment in time. But oddly, for that reason, I think it's aged really well. So Gene Kelly was being pursued by Universal to play Danny. And he said he would not be dancing in the film. It took a lot to actually convince him to be in the film. And it required one more thing, which was a one-on-one meeting with Kenny Ortega. And if he didn't like Ortega, he wouldn't do the film, even if he wasn't dancing. So Kenny Ortega tells the story of several hours locked behind a door to go over Ortega's vision. And Kelly went, so I'm not going to dance in the film. But if I did, what would you have me do? So Ortega was completely taken aback, had no idea what to do, but went back on what he knew, which was Kelly's body of work, which was prolific. Everyone knew Kelly's body of work. And that's what sold him on the movie. They danced for over an hour together. And if you've seen the final product, Gene Kelly dances in the film. I mean, how can you not have Gene Kelly dance in a film? Now, Michael Beck was selected right on the heels of his turn as Swan in The Warriors to play Sonny. Now, The Warriors hadn't been released yet, obviously, when this was being filmed, but he, you know, word around. But the music, Maddie, let's talk about the music. I can just hear you at home. Barry DeVorens and the Electric Light Orchestra are credited with writing the music for this movie, but I believe there's like four or five people who actually all kind of together wrote the music. It was kind of the best of the late 70s disco with the big band sound of the 50s and the emerging rock styles that would like blaze with hairspray and electric riffs into the 1980s. It is unusual the way it kind of happened. They brought in a band called The Tubes to perform these numbers. It, in many ways, is not a musical the way we think of musicals. It is a musical in the way that like old school Hollywood films are musicals because the music doesn't always progress the plot. They're just kind of there to create things. So in a lot of ways... Also, because like Olivia Newton-John sings most of the music in this, but nobody else really sings with her. And a lot of the time, she's not even singing in the scenes. We can tell it's her singing, but you know, it's just a thing. So for me, it's one of those, it's like a musical movie, but it is not a musical in its idea. But I digress. It was shot around LA and features then iconic places that made Venice Beach a fairy tale location and its very own capitalizing of the uniqueness of what culture was happening at that time in California. The dance numbers featured giant ensemble of dancers who were all incredibly hardworking local artists of the time who all kind of came together and brought their friends and things. This was truly a, who do you know, who can we call? I mean, they made this movie for like 20 million, which like not the cheapest, but like considering what was happening, like, you know, it it only made back 23 million to, to, you know. So Xanadu released to much pomp and circumstance on August 8th of 1980, including a party inside the set that was built for the movie for the nightclub, including people like Cher and giant people of the time. Now, if you see a lot of the footage of Cher at the party, she was not having a good time. But then what happened? Well, let's start with that it was contracted that the movie would be released in over 800 cinemas around North America. 
but when all was said and done, it was only released in about 249 theaters and led to the company saying, good news is they love it in St. Louis. But what this actually meant was they hated it pretty much everywhere else. Then enter the critics. To give you an idea, it still only has a 29% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which, you know, I think is an absolute crime. And most of the major voices in film, uh, contemporary to the time, destroyed it in print. I mean, James Sanford from the Kalamazoo Gazette, I know, Kalamazoo Gazette, there's never been a movie quite like this, and there will never be a movie again. And that may not be a bad thing. While Lauren Hayes of Radio Times in London said, a laugh if only for its mind-boggling awfulness. But one that brings an interesting thought to mind was this one. Conventional wisdom decrees that Xanadu is a horrible film. In a sense, conventional wisdom may be correct, but it ignores one key ingredient. Viewed in the right frame of mind, this movie can be a lot of fun. Now, as we've discovered on most of our case file episodes, and as we progress into time where Siskel and Ebert were the only ones who could be critics and really question anything, but what makes a good film and what makes a good fan film and why it's a fan favorite aren't necessarily two different things. Xanadu continued into a life of late night double features and home video releases and has a massive fan following. And it's kept its legacy alive to this day. One of these late night featured paired Xanadu with Can't Stop the Music, a pop driven musical film of about the same time and inspired the now famous Golden Raspberry Awards, which rewarding and ragging on the worst films of the year. Xanadu would go on in its inaugural year to be nominated for eight, or I'm sorry, six awards, including Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Actor, Worst Actress, Worst Screenplay, and Worst Original Song, and it would win Worst Original Song. And it would go on to win Worst Original Song. But sometimes those infamous properties are the most famous and memorable. So why should we celebrate Xanadu? and continue to revisit it and love it after all these years? Well, we'll find out right after these short messages. Video games are a unique medium. They can tell stories. Immerse us in strange, fantastic worlds. Blur the very boundaries of our reality. But at the end of the day, video games are fun. Whatever fun is to you. I'm Jeff Moonen. And I am Matt A.K.A. Stormageddon. And on Fun and Games, we talk about the history, trends, and community of video games. It's a celebration of all the games we play and all the fun we find within them. And there's so many more games out there. So we hope you'll share in that conversation with us. Fun and Games podcast with Matt and Jeff. Find us on certpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And happy gaming. Hey there, Screen Beans. Have you heard about Screen Snark? Rachel, this is an ad break. They aren't screen beans until they listen to the show. Fine. Potential screen beans. You like movies and TV shows, right? I mean, who doesn't? Screen Snark is a casual conversation about the movies and television shows that are shaping us as we live our everyday lives. That's right, Matt. We have a chat with at least one incredible guest every episode, hailing from all walks. We've interviewed chefs, writers, costumers, musicians, yoga teachers, comedians, burlesque dancers, folks in the film and TV industry, and more. We'd be delighted for you to join us every other Monday on the Certain POV Podcast Network. Or wherever you get your podcasts, fresh and tasty off the presses. What? what? That's... No, that's not... Can I call them screen beans now? Fine. 
screen beans. So tune in and we'll see you at the movies or on a couch somewhere. Because you're a whole screen beans now. All right, serial killers. So why should you go visit Xanadu? So you, a lot of you know at this point that I am a costume designer. I'm a designer. I work in theater. And so this movie was one of my, if not my first, one of my first viewings of a musical on film. My dad loved Olivia Newton-John. He still does. Uh, she is an incredible icon. We just lost her. So this is also kind of a tribute to her, but also just the legacy of this movie. So uh, if you've heard me talk about properties that my dad introduced me to, this is just, for me, I don't need any other reason than that. But it's also just kind of the kind of queer person I turned into is very much coded by this movie. So I have to start off with the costume designs uh, by Bobby Mannix, who in an interview said almost all of these costumes, actually all of these costumes were handmade for this movie. And something really interesting, if you pinpoint back to when certain trends started, a lot of them started in the fall of 1980, just after this movie released. The neon spandex and leg warmers, which were kind of prevalent in roller culture, boomed. They ended up in stores, in boutiques. They were in they were in fashion shoots. And it's because so many of the people calling those shots or would go on to call those shots very soon all worked on this film in different ways. And so it's this incredible combination. And so we look at a lot of these costumes now and we go, wow, these were even really extravagant and crazy for LA at the time for all of these things or you know oh zoot suits don't really match or look at all these like flowy things but the thing is intrinsically the design of this movie works together so beautifully so there's a key scene that happens called all over the world where Sonny and Kira take Danny to get his digs for opening night because he you know He's a clarinetist from the 1950s. So, of course, he's got that very classic style, but he's Gene Kelly, so he looks incredible. So they take him to Fiorucci's, which is, you know, if anybody knows anything about style and fashion in L.A. of the time, Fiorucci's was the place to go. It started as a movie theater that became this giant kind of store where if you needed something, you went. It's where a lot of fashion houses went. You went for, it's like where photo shoots, they would go buy these things and build these things because they were kind of extravagant and insane, but it really featured the eccentricity that was happening in the arts culture, in fashion, and all these things that were happening in Venice Beach. They were happening in LA and they weren't happening elsewhere. So like we look at that all over the world scene and we're just like, well, this looks absolutely insane. It looks like a Village People music video. It looks like all these things, but it's because that's what was happening. And combine that with the um, Dance Tonight scene, which is the first time where we see Danny and Sonny in the, the club together. And so Danny wants a big band feature, you know, which is super nostalgia. The 80s were hella nostalgia. And a lot of that had to do with, uh, you know, he wasn't president yet. Carter was president, I believe, during this point. But Ronald Reagan would go on to be president. But there's this old Hollywood thing that was really becoming huge at the time of this kind of look back at old Hollywood, the studio system era. And so Danny being like, oh, yes, this big band. And then Sonny was like, no, an electric rock band. And so we have these two parts happening 
you know, it feasibly, we think in different sound stages. Now they would be in completely different sound stages, all these things. But you have this like beautiful, like they look like a watercolor drawing, like a Norman Rockwell version of uh, a, a, a zoot club, a big band club. So you've got the zoot suits, you've got the very sleek look, you've got the military look and all the women's in there. It, it was just awesome. And then you look over and you've got this like crazy trash neon rock and roll with this rock band with eyes on their their bass drums and all these things and then suddenly the two bandstands are sliding together and they're combining the sound of the 50s with the sound of 1980 and it honestly works really cool the band still talks about to this day it's it's one of their most requested songs that they refuse to play for obvious reasons but they even said they wore the yellow or the orange jumpsuits for years but it's the two amalgamations and you see the like it like animals joining each other for the first time and meeting someone new. You're getting these dancers from the forties that are being melded in with the dancers from 1980 and creating this really interesting style, which is also kind of enveloping this idea. There was a duality. There were a lot of dual roles in this film. And if you've ever worked on a project where there's two people doing the same job, it gets really chaotic because it's hard to unify vision, especially when this film didn't really understand what its vision was. It was a lot of people's first film directors, writers. It was a lot of people's first time out of the bat, including some of the producing people for universal, which is why, you know, there's a lot of things that on paper might be a little messy in this film, but like, I still don't think they're that messy. So I think for me, I always start with the costumes. Cause even then in the very beginning, we're seeing, the muses when they're popping out of this wall and it's not even just costume design the utilization of combining backgrounds you know in kind of a clunky way but combining neon in this art deco style like deco was a huge thing that was still present all over uh venice beach and they thought it really molded well because at its story this is also inspired by a greek fable which was also a rita hayworth film they were taking inspirations from all of these things because you know there are five original ideas so a lot of things inform other things and so this was really a love letter to those things and so this idea of each of the muses is in this almost like pastel white but it's very of the late 70s so it's very gauzy and cotton and it's everyone has their own really unique look and they had an incredibly diverse cast of the muses they were racially diverse all about the same body type but even different hair colors and all these things that really kind of made it this interesting interesting group and it's something that they would like make a point of today but it just kind of happened then of these incredible dancers along with Olivia Newton-John and so you know they're in this very 70s inspired Grecian look because a lot of what was inspiring the 70s was this Greek silhouettes flowing and billowy but somehow still hugging the body and looking incredible and so then when we get to this final moment in the movie which is the unveiling of the club you think one musical number yeah it's it's really like six musical numbers in one 15 to 20 minute like pocket and it's absolutely incredible because it starts off as this like roller disco thing but you've got these people in zoot suits there and one of the dancers at the time even said that like that's what people were wearing out to the nightclubs. There was such a revival of this kind of new idea of what the 40s and 50s were, especially because the zoot suit culture started in LA. A lot of it came out of Los Angeles and it has a lot to do with like the Mexican Americans that were living and working who are migrant workers. So, you know, a lot of that is kind of taken and appropriated into fashion, but it's this like awesome thing that they really showed and, and combining this idea of like, 
muted browns and creams with the like burgundies and teals and blues and all these things and it just was really cool but the the muse sisters with kira cleo kira kira oh my god did i call her cleo oh my god i'm not gonna go back and record the beginning part um her name is kira <laughs> uh because she's supposed to be tisephone uh uh, the muse uh, from Greek mythology. Wow, y'all. I'm glad we're on this journey together. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm at sea right now as I'm recording this for you. So this is, we're having fun. Um, I hope you can't hear the ship engines or the ocean, but there were all these things. And like, so they went through all of these, like a cowboy number. They did like a 1930s, like hobble skirt. And like, it was all this, like with like crazy, like hair metal and in tiger stripes. And then ended up in these like silver futuristic Grish things that turned into their original costumes from the beginning of the film. And it's this really thing that costumes do so much to tell the story. Now the story, again, it seems kind of simple. You know, man loves girl, girl loves boy. Girl is, you know, a, a goddess muse uh, and it's forbidden. And so the story, it, it says it's quite simplistic. And really when you look at it now and know that like the music was written outside of a lot of this it's kind of like a lot of Pascal and paul musical scores now i come for me uh you know their music it can exist outside of the the film and in most places it doesn't actually belong where it is like dear Evan henson you could take almost any of those songs out pop them in greatest showman it's whatever like they're bops but so what happened was a lot of the story happens outside of the songs but the songs really it's hard to describe without other being like it's this incredible 90 minute music video like opera thing where you I mean because this is still the time where people would listen through soundtracks they would listen through records and this is a movie that you buy the record for and it went double platinum so like the music is incredible and the characters don't sing in it other than Olivia Newton-John and she doesn't live sing so she's the voice of the muse in this movie but the music is just so catchy and it's such a bop and it's still remembered years later um what I do think is interesting that we're going to talk about with the music there are two songs that were originally recorded for the movie but didn't make the movie and one of them is a song that they decided later just had to be in the movie it just had to be but they hadn't shot anything for it it wasn't in their storyboards so they went to Don Bluth who had just left Disney Pictures to form his own company they had just finished Secrets of Nim there were they were working on Secrets of Nim and they got this pitch that said, we think this would be great animated. And it's this moment where Kira shows Sonny the magic and the magic turns them animated. And so they're, it's very much Sorcerer in the Stone in many ways. And so they're kind of jumping through all these scenes where they're animated. It's like Thumbelina that would end up happening a decade later. Um, you know, they're birds, they're fish. It is such a wonderful song. It's... Um, so good. And if you all know anything about me, it's I love animation and I will die on the hill 
that we only got the Disney Renaissance because Bluth left Disney and it made Disney step their pussies up, step their shit up. And I'm sorry, Secrets of Nim is incredible. The American Tale is incredible. Anastasia, incredible. Swan Prince, incredible. Um, you know, so many things. Like, we've only got DreamWorks today because of Don Bluth. Like, there are all these things that, like, it is absolutely beautiful and stunning and you can take that out of the movie and a really fun thing about it is because there was no section of the movie shot Kenny Ortega who choreographed all of this who you know again Kenny Ortega would go on to direct and choreograph Newsies Hocus Pocus the high school musical franchise most recently like Julie and the Phantoms he does a lot with Disney but Ortega just does what he does and he does it great I really like Kenny I like his work Say what you will, but High School Musical was a monolith. It was a moment in time. Like, Hocus Pocus still being a moment in time is a moment in time. It is a little disappointing that Kenny didn't do High School, uh, Hocus Pocus 2, which will be out by the time this debuts. But, uh, yeah, it's just this great moment. And so they had Kenny... This was an old rotoscope thing where they went through and like filmed Kenny and a dancer dancing their choreography. And so when you really look at it now and you notice the like silhouette of the face and everything, they draw Sonny over it. But that's Kenny Ortega's face. And, you know, then they made the uh, female dancer look like Olivia Newton-John. But they were really smart in ways of keeping little what... Uh, Don Bluth called dog ears so that you knew who Kira was. So she was blonde. There was a ponytail. So it was like a yellow bird. But she always had the little leg warmers on, which I think is just so charming and so sweet. And Sonny's character always had his little vest. Um, and so that just number is so, so special. Um, and secondly, there's another number um, called Whenever You're Away From Me. And it, too, had been recorded and didn't make the film. And they went through test audiences and everyone went to a movie to see Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John do a number together. But there wasn't one. They're on screen together maybe two and a half minutes of the whole movie. And so it's this idea that is introduced that Kira was also a muse that inspired Danny in the 1950s to go out and have his big band club, to have his moment. And so he's remembering, he's playing a record in a kind of a dance hall, like ballroom style in the big Los Angeles homes. Because the beautiful thing about this character is it isn't intrinsically rich, but you know that he has done quite well for himself. His house is big and beautiful, but he's also enough to like, I mean, granted it's the eighties. How much did real estate cost? Honestly, but it's, we see Kira show up and she is in Andrew's sister's kind of world war two USO girl, like uniform. And they do this beautiful number where like the big band slowly fades in and you see this thing and it's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene. And again, so you're saying, Maddie, wait, it didn't happen in the film. So how do we have it? Gene Kelly's contract was over. He didn't particularly enjoy working on the film at the end of the day. He's, I mean, it's no secret now that Gene Kelly was incredibly difficult he's of that studio era he was not a great human at the end of the day but he was very specific but having him do another universal picture meant a lot to the legacy of kind of his work and everything and kind of so they got him to agree to do this song and for me it doesn't feel out of place I love setting up that idea that 
there's this connection back, back and back over and over again. And, um, I just, I think it's so beautiful. It's so sweet. And it kind of has this connection that your inspiration can also be someone else's inspiration. And having that through Kira was just really, really incredible. Um, you know, and so I also want to shout out the song moment in time that Kira sings as she's stuck in Olympus, which is this kind of black box space that we would know as like a green screen now. And it's just like kind of Olympus, but nobody else is there except the voids of Hera and Zeus, uh, both iconic older British actors who I love old Disney actors. Um, and Kira just sings this kind of beautiful moment uh, about being caught in a moment of time and um, Zeus says, all right, you can go for just one moment. And then Hera goes, just one moment? Not not a lifetime? And he goes, ah, human time. It's just so interesting to me. I forget which is which, which is a nice little wink and nod. So Sonny goes back and isn't really feeling opening the club and doesn't even want to go. And then out of nowhere, the performance starts and there is Kira performing with the sister muses. And it's amazing and it's incredible, but she disappears at the end. They all beam out and so Sunny's sad again. And then a cocktail waitress shows up and is Kira. We don't know if it's Kira. We assume it's Kira and they just smile. And Danny smiles and walks away because she never loved him back, but she loves Sonny, but he, he sees that. So it's this inspiration, this kind of artist inspiration, inspiring other, each other. And it's really this kind of cross-generation thing. Um, and so I guess the, a little kind of caveat is so much of where this movie was filmed no longer exists. Unfortunately, like the, the old auditorium that is the outside of the Xanadu nightclub burned down about a decade later. Um, the Fiorucci's got knocked down and is now another iconic building. But so this movie in many ways is a love letter to the LA that was and an LA that no longer is. It's, it's in many ways when we're talking about like old school Times Square, old school New York, like it's one of those things that, yeah, it wasn't the safest, but it was a different place. Like New York city is physically a different, physically a different city now after, you know Disney coming into Times Square and kind of changing that idea to make it more tourist driven and so there is this really interesting about the architecture and going back to the design of the art deco inspiration and so much of deco it was inspired by like Greek lines and things and and so it's it's really an incredibly intelligent design in many ways it's it's all of the in many ways you could say it was ahead of its time, but I don't think this movie was ever going to be part of its time. Like it needed to capture this moment. But like I said before, is it was said that it was supposed to not intentionally age well. They wanted to capture this moment in time. But what they've also done is captured this love letter that is no more to to Venice Beach, to LA, to these things that don't exist anymore. And it's a love letter to music and so much of the time and art and culture in things that we just don't experience media in the same way anymore. And I think that's really, really, really special. 
Now, of course, the last thing we have to talk about, and we've talked about it a little, it's the cast is great. Like Gene Kelly, Olivia Newton-John. Now, Olivia Newton-John, I don't care what you say, she's not a great actress. She never will be. I loved her in Sorted Lives in such an an uncelebrated role. She was so great. I mean, Grease is iconic despite its problems. Like Grease is the word. Grease will eternally be the word, but you should stop performing it in your high schools, please. Um, (laughs) And Grease Live was garbage. Um, And just... Gene Kelly, you like what's really interesting about Gene character Gene Kelly's character is he is from another movie. It is a crossover. That character existed. So his backstory of Danny being this big band leader is from another movie. The character, like first and last name, it is Gene Kelly from another movie, which I think is extraordinary. And it's an amazing Easter egg for anybody that loves classic film, the like Hollywood era, like the studio era of films. Like I think it's great. But this music is incredible. There's a reason why it went double platinum. There's a reason why I own two copies of it on vinyl, one sealed, one unsealed. One, because there's something really incredible about this era of music on vinyl. But it's also, the music is so incredible and so poppy and just, it is earbugs. Like, it's so good. And Olivia Newton-John sang the way she sang well. Like, again, also not the most amazing singer either. But she was just magnetic. And there's so much of that magnetism and love it in just incredible life in the soundtrack of this. Um, and it's, you know, should forever be remembered. And so much of this music is still so popular and comes up when, you know, you talk about Olivia Newton John and all these things. So, like, the soundtrack is also absolutely incredible. Now, this is like a lot of things where it gets a cult following and actually has the most incredible, like you can't stop the music does not have nearly the shelf life of this. A lot of other movies and musicals like this do not have the shelf life. The Apple, all of these other things don't have the life that this had. And it even inspired a musical based on the script. Um, Now what's really great about the musical opened in 2007 uh, starring Carrie Butler, Cheyenne Jackson, Mary Testa, Jackie Hoffman. It parodies the film. Like, it, it embraces what the film was, but also, like, the best and worst parts of it. And they really hash it out a little more. They they add a couple more ELO songs in, which is really, uh, really incredible. They add... Because there's no real villain in this story at all. Like, there's really nothing fighting against them other than, like, Zeus says no. Um, and so, you know, if anybody knows anything about the Muses, the Muses all inspired something different and there were also muses of chaos and discord so those two muses are the villains and they sing the incredible evil woman um you know there was a flying unicorn there were all these really amazing things about roller skating they were taking all the like cringeworthy things that makes this movie amazing and made an incredible incredible musical it ran like a year and a half on broadway it was so good and there's a real reason why these kinds of movies like You can call it a bad film all you want, but like what even is film anymore and what are we even enjoying? Like it's this idea that like a critic doesn't have to love or appreciate it in order for it to be good or for it to be, not everything needs to be made by A24 and not everything needs to be added to the Criterion Collection. Like it's one of those things that like, Sometimes we can just love things for what they are. And this movie is unabashedly what it is. Now, it is a shame at the end of the day that Gene Kelly wrote in his biography that Xanadu was wonderful on paper and just didn't get it right in execution. 
And it's something that I don't think we could ever capture again, because I think it would be too much laden on the capturing of faux nostalgia. But we don't need to remake it. We don't need another version of this. Now, would I love to see a musical film of the musical? Absolutely. Would I love to see the musical get another go right now? I think this is a perfect time. But we also... It's, it's another reason why like we don't need constant remakes because we have this and this is all we need and it's amazing. So friends, this has been another deep dive into the case files of why we should give Xanadu another go. So I'm hoping you were kind of stop this episode and go watch it right now. It's on several of the streaming platforms for, I believe, rental. Go pay the $1.99 and rent it. You can always find this in your DVD bin for like 4 or $5 at Amazon. Or if you're still near Walmart, it's always like $5. Buy this shit up. Buy anytime you find this vinyl at a, at a, um, vintage shop at a record store buy this vinyl it's always between a dollar and five dollars buy it it's so fracking good all right friends thank you again for coming along this journey and we'll see you next time for another deep dive into the files of saturday morning confidential are you tired of watching your beloved characters being tortured by careless authors Are you sick of feeling like they could have swapped out all of the painful action and the plot would remain untouched? Subscribe to Books That Burn, the fortnightly book review podcast focusing on fictional depictions of trauma. We assume that the characters' reactions are reasonable and focus on how badly or well they were served by their authors. Join us for our minor character spotlights, main character discussions, and favorite non-traumatic things in the dark books we love. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Saturday Morning Confidential is brought to you by Dreamer Productions and is a proud member of the Certain POV Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook at Saturday Morning Confidential, on Instagram at SMC Pod, and on Twitter at The SMC Podcast. You can find all the shows that Certain POV has to offer at CertainPOV.com or also on Patreon at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of only $2 a month keeps constant programming coming in and supporting our new shows as we go throughout 2022. Now join us again next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.